0: World over the last month has been rudely aware of the reality of war. With what's happened with uh, Russia and Ukraine, war has been headline news and every news channel now for a month, every single day. There's an article entitled "What Every Person Should Know about War." Let me quote a few things about it. First of all, what is a war? Do you know? A war, by definition, is an active conflict that claims more than 1,000 lives that's how it's defined. So if you have a conflict between nations that more than a thousand people die, it's considered a war. Has the world ever been at peace? The best we can tell over about the last 4,000 years, at about only 8% of the world's history have we had at times when they're not war. So 92% of all of time, there's been major wars going on. So war is by far the norm of human existence peace is an exceptional portion we hardly ever have peace in the history of the world how many people have died in war do you know they say the number is somewhere between 150 million to 1 billion people have died in war up to a billion people have died in wars and we have about seven billion seven something billion people on earth today but about one billion in history have died through wars. How much do they cost? The Gulf War, they think, cost about $76 billion. The the Vietnam War, $500 billion. The Korean War, $336 billion. World War II, just under $3 trillion. 9-11, $3.3 trillion. The cost to our country and the world for 9 11 is $3.3 trillion. That's a lot. That is larger than the gross national product of almost all the countries in the world combined. That's just what 9 11 cost us. How dangerous for civilians? Here's one that will surprise you. In the wars of the 1990s, just 1990s, that's not long ago, between 75 and 90% of all of the deaths. Were civilians, not military people. So today, in almost all the wars, the people who die are not military. They're civilians, like us, which isn't very good. And this one stunned me. In the entire history of the United States of America, there has been a grand total of blank years that we have not been at war with someone. How would you fill in the blank? In our entire 250-year history, how many years have we not been at war? The number? 15. Almost our whole existence as a nation, all we've done is been at war. That's stunning. Again, we, we think life is about peace, but that's not what the, is, the science doesn't tell us that. The science tells us we live in a world of war. And There's probably no one who has better described war than Winston Churchill. When he took over the prime ministership of England... At the time that the Second World War broke out, he gave this famous speech. We are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory victory at all costs victory in spite of all terror victory however long and hard the road may be for without victory there is no survival and then a little bit later he made another statement he said this if you will not fight for the right when you can easily win without bloodshed if you will not fight when victory will be sure and not too costly you may come to the moment when you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival. There may be even an even worse case. You may have to fight when there is no hope of victory because it is better to perish than to live as slaves. We live in a world that's primarily defined by war. We forget that because here in Riverton, Wyoming, we live a very, very peaceful life. In fact, we've been unusually blessed as a people in the United States of America with peace, even though most of our existence, we've been fighting some battle somewhere. But I'm going to invite you today into a world of war, because that's what Daniel 10 is all about. But it's more than the wars that we see, and we can count and calculate the cost and the loss of lives. It's something far more sinister than we would ever suspect. Thankfully, God in his mercy does not let us know much about this facet of life. We see what we see, and what we see is horrific. If we were in Ukraine right now, or we were in Poland, or these other countries where they have three million, three million people running for their lives, that's six times the the population of this entire state running for their lives. If we were there, we, we would know about war. But today Daniel is going to be given by God a picture of war that is going to come, but it's worse because he's going to see what's happening in a realm that we do not normally see in the spiritual realm. So I welcome you today, though I don't really like to welcome you, to Daniel chapter 10, a passage, in fact, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible on spiritual warfare. Now, remember where we've been in Daniel. In chapter 9, the last 9, it began with Daniel's magnificent prayer. He's praying for his people that God would fulfill his promises to bring his people back to the land of Israel. Because remember, they're exiles. And he knows the time is about right for God to do that because God promised he would only put his people into exile for 70 years. And it's time to go back. And then Daniel is given by God what's called the... The, the, the vision of the 70 weeks, where God outlines what the future is going to hold for the people of Israel. And it's bad and incredibly good. It's both. It's going to be tough, but the end is triumphant. But now in the last three chapters of Daniel, this is Daniel's fourth and final vision. It's, cha- it's three chapters. It's a long one. Today in chapter 10, we're going to kind of see the preamble to it. In chapter 11, you'll see the the ongoing portion of it, and then chapter 12, it'll wrap it up. And then we'll be done, Lord willing, with the book of Daniel. So today, someone wrote this way. In Daniel chapter 10, we see the curtain pulled back a bit further so that we get an intriguing yet mysterious glimpse into the heavenly realities that stand behind human conflict. So we're going to see... What's the source of all this war and all the tragedy that we see on our earth today? Where does it come from? What's really going on? Because if you were looking at what's going on now in in Eastern Europe, you'd say, this doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't, unless there's something more going on, and there is, Daniel would tell us. So Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Because Daniel's going to begin by telling us that there's, there's war on the horizon because God is going to tell him that. Now, it, it, it's sad, but unfortunately it's true that we mark our history as a country by tragedies. We date the start of our history through a war, the Revolutionary War which was followed by the Spanish-American War, which was followed by the War of 1812, which was followed by the Civil War, which was followed by World War I, which was followed by the Great Depression, which was followed by World War II, which was followed by 9-11, which was followed by the Great Recession. We mark all of our history by wars. What does that tell you about us? Daniel's now going to be given a vision of the future, And wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, it's going to all be about war. Daniel one. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Now we're going to find out that Daniel was in the business of kind of pondering the ways of God. And we know the date, the date of this is 536 BC, three years or so after Cyrus had become the king of Persia. Remember the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539. And so three years after the time that, that the new administration took over and about two years after Cyrus gave the the decree that God's people could go back to Israel and they had gone back to Israel. A number of them had gone back. Daniel did not go back. Ezekiel did not go back. They were probably very old. And by the way, this trip would have taken about four months of very hard travel to go back to the promised land. Zerubbabel and Chesbizar and others went back. They went back with the great notion of rebuilding their nation, rebuilding the temple. And when they got back, they laid the foundation and then they gave up. Why did they give up? Well, they gave up because the people who lived in that region, there were people there. Guess who was living there? People called the Samaritans had moved in a hundred years earlier and they didn't like these Jewish people coming back and saying, this is our land. And so they opposed them. And in fact, the Samaritans sent emissaries back to the Persian government and said, stop these people coming. They're bad people. They're disrupting us. They don't like you. They're not subservient to you. Stop them. And the Jewish people got scared, and so they halted the work that they were doing. And Daniel got word about that. And what did he do? Well, he did what he always did. He prayed. The vision that God was going to give him was a vision about a, a great war and we're going to find that it shook him to his core. Now, what, how would you respond if, if you were given a vision about from God about some horrible war that's going to take place in the future? What would you do? Well, we got lots of options. <laughs> you could th- thank your lucky stars that you're going to be gone before the war breaks out. That's <laughs> nice for you. But what about for your grandchildren? If you knew a great war was coming, maybe you could arm yourself and begin survival training. You could become despairing and give up. You could do your best to try to avert the war and make the world a better place. You could encourage people not to have children anymore, because how would you ever think of bringing children into such a bad world? People do all of these things. But what did Daniel do? Daniel's given a vision. He's about to be given a vision from God about a great war. So what does he do? He should be our model because he's a very, very godly person. Well, verse 2 tells us what he did. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So what did he do? He cried for three weeks. Basically, he fasted. He changed his whole lifestyle. He went into a time of deep, deep, deep lament or grief. That's what he did. And by the way, that's not a bad response. If you or myself was given a vision of things in the future that are going to happen that are not so good, you could, of course, put your head in the sand. You could deny that it's going to happen or you could just mourn because nobody in their right mind or heart likes to see people suffer. And war always involves the suffering of many, many people. You see, the realization of the depravity of human humanity, including ourselves, which is often at its worst during times of war, should sober us to the core of our being. One of the questions I always ask myself when things are going on and I look at the world events, one of my, the questions I always ask is, what is God up to? I don't know the answer to that question. I can only speculate at best. But here's my speculation. God, one of the things that God is doing, besides bringing many people to the gospel, one of the things God is doing is he's shaken up Europe to the core of its being. Europe, over the last 50 or more years, has increasingly eradicated God from the picture, becoming increasingly thinking that humanity is basically good, and now they're being shocked right in the face by the fact that they had believed an incredible lie. It's not true. And so that's shocking to think right on their borders, a a continent that has known so many war, war after war. Europe is basically a study of war. That's all it is, is war, people killing each other. We have less of that here, and we don't have a very good history. But Europe is worse. And maybe they had gotten into the mindset, oh, yeah, we're all nice. I guess they all came from Minnesota, Minnesota nice. <laughs> and they realized, no, it's not true. All people aren't nice because the truth is that power corrupts people. and When you put even more power, it corrupts them even worse. We're seeing some of the incredible corruption of power and money played out right now at the cost of thousands and tens of thousands of people's lives. And so remember, it was Jesus Jesus was asked 2,000 years ago about the future, and here's what our Lord Jesus said. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are just the beginning of birth pains. This isn't the real event yet. These are just the birth pains before the delivery of the bad stuff. As human beings, as followers of Jesus, we should live in a profound sense of pain about the reality of war and that there is nothing this side of heaven that is completely right. And when we do experience good times, which we do, we should be profoundly grateful, which we are oftentimes not. How do we respond to human evil? Well, do we mourn? Do we lament? Do we hide? Do we deny? Daniel mourned for three weeks. But now Daniel's going to get a few more details. This is verse four. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen, With a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist, his body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Well, Daniel tells us when this took place. This is 536 BC in the month of Nisan, which would be about now, this time of the year, we find him not in, on the Euphrates River, that's where Babylon is, but he's on the other great river, the one to the east called the Tigris River, another enormous river, and there he sees a man. Who in the world is this? Well, interestingly, when you look at the various facets of this man, they're pretty stunning. He's dressed in linen, which is a symbol of priestly purity. But the priest's sash, which he wears, is made actually out of gold. You see, the priest, the high priest of Israel is made out of linen, not gold. His body like chrysolite, which is beautiful. His face like lightning, penetrating inside and glory, like radiating from his face. His legs and his arms depict supernatural strength. His voice Is deep and strong and authoritative. And who is this man? Well, interestingly, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, there's someone introduced there who is just like this. And guess who that person is? Jesus. So many, many, most scholars believe that the person that Daniel first sees in his vision is the pre incarnate Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? Well, what God's about to show Daniel is not very pretty. And to give him the strength and the hope and the endurance to face it, what he's about to see, he gets to see Jesus. Anyone else get that? Dan, um, Paul got that, remember? Paul, an ardent, zealous Jew killing people for the cause of Judaism, is given a personal vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, "Paul, it's good you get to see me because you have no clue yet what you're going to have to suffer for my name." And Paul willingly suffered. Paul, he was an incredible person. How do you do that? Well, he saw Jesus. He said, "Hey, they kill me now. Great, I get to go home. I get to. See. I've been to heaven. I know what's there. I know. i I've seen Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the one who taught me. I've seen the resurrected Jesus. You couldn't kill Paul. Impossible. He was already dead." He'd already been to heaven. So he said, if you want to kill me, that's fine, but it's better for me to, I'd rather go home. When God gives insight like he gave to Daniel, like he gave to Paul, like he gave to John, Jesus usually shows up. Oh, and that's what he did here. And then in verse 7, we see, I, Daniel, was not, was the only one who saw the vision. That's like, remember, with Paul. Paul saw the light and the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But the other people didn't, and here's what happened here. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. They didn't see, but they felt it. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deadly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep. My face To the ground. Well, Daniel, you know, is a very, very important person, one of the most important people in the entire world at that time. And of course, he had an entourage with him, no surprise there. And when Daniel was given this vision of who may have been Jesus himself, he saw it, but his entourage did not. But they knew something was going on, and they were so terrified they went and hid themselves. Daniel was given a sight of the king who would one day reign in righteousness, which must have boosted his morale and given him confidence that God is in control of history, not evil leaders, but it shook him to the soul, to his soul. Have you ever, um, have you ever seen or sensed or dreamed or encountered spiritual forces? Have you? I have a little bit, not much. I, I used to live in, um, in Africa. I lived there for three years where there was a lot of spiritual crazy activity. I, I saw some funny, strange things. Of course, the Bible says don't have anything to do with bad spirits. The occult or mediums or spiritualists, don't mess with that stuff because there's real power there and it's not good. Don't mess with it. And in fact, some fear is probably pretty good. It protects us. And there's certain things we should be afraid of. And this is one of them. Well, Daniel now, before the vision is going to be given to him, he has a, a picture of one glorious one in heaven, probably Jesus, that bolsters his confidence in, about what, in, in what he's about to see. And what does he see? Well, this is in verse 10. Here comes, he's got this vision, and now he is touched by an angel. I think there's a TV program by that title. Verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, this is probably someone different, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed. In other words, you are, um, actually the word means you are coveted. God. Can you imagine? Daniel, you who are coveted by God. That's how great this man is. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And When he said this to me, I stood up trembling. This is probably an angelic being, an angelic ministry to Daniel. He he touches him. I guess he called that celestial first aid because Daniel's scared. He's he's, he's shaking. The angel says, settle down, Daniel. God, you're really special to God. You see, the touch of the angel is not frightening. It's strengthening. It's heartening. Now, by the way, uh, a little word about angels. The Bible speaks about angels quite a bit. Who are they? Well, angels are created beings. They're not eternal. They're created. And apparently, the creation of angels preceded the creation of the world and any other human beings. Angels, the Bible tells us, they marvel at God's creation. When they see what God did, they marvel, but angels do not procreate. And yet, the Bible tells us that they number in the millions and millions. It's really too many to count. Angels are powerful, but they're not omnipotent like God. They are intelligent but they're not omniscient like God. They are spiritual beings, but they can take on a human appearance. One of my favorite verses, and I hope it's favorite for you too. It says, do not hesitate to show hospitality to people. As Christians, one of the things we should often do is show hospitality to people. Why? Because some of you have entertained angels and you don't even know it. If you had an opportunity to give a meal to an angel, do you think you'd do it? You may have that opportunity. You may have had that opportunity. You may well have fed at your table or taken out to eat or shown kindness to an angel. You didn't even know it. Angels are very, very important. They can take on human appearance. Angels are invisible, but they can become, they're both visible and invisible, but they're not omnipresent. That's why people sometimes say, I have been, Satan was tempting me. No, he didn't. Satan never tempted you. Because Satan is an angel, a fallen angel. He's not omnipresent. I don't think he's messing with us. He's got a far bigger fish to fry than us. We are tempted by demons, but not by Satan, because there's only one of him. And obviously, where was he when, when Jesus was here on earth? Hounding Jesus at every turn, because, of course, there's no one he hated like Jesus. Angels are sometimes mistaken for deity. That's wrong. Angels should never be worshipped. Angels, the Bible tells us, have emotions and they're, they're majestic and their appearance is, is terrifying. They are not infantile or feminine or cute or cuddly as we picture them. You know, they've got little, their little the big tummies and little wings and cute cherubic faces. Can you imagine something like that? And the first words you find in the Bible over and over again is do not be afraid. You'd be afraid of a little thing, a little pudgy little thing like that? No. That's the, and of course, one that's really wrong is people say, oh, when you, when a, especially a child dies and they become an angel, that's, that's demeaning. We are greater than the angels. Human beings are the highest of God's creation, not the angels. One day the angels are going to look at us and they're going to envy us. We are the object of the angel's envy, we who are followers of Jesus Christ. No, it's demeaning to think that we would turn into angels. That's a step down. That's not a step up. We are made in the image of God himself, and we are recreated in the image of Jesus. There's nothing greater than that in all the cosmos than to be remade clothed in the righteousness of Jesus faultless to stand before the throne of God. The touch of an angel we hear here is, um, is, is comforting and strengthening. From this passage, we learn that the presence of angels may be felt, even if it's not seen. We can see from this passage that the presence of angels can take your breath away. And sometimes angels are sent by God in response to our prayers. And angels are involved in, we're going to see now in cosmic conflict. Over and over again in the Bible at the most important, the most important passages in the Bible, who are there? The angels. In the Garden of Eden, we find angels. When God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, we find angels. When God gave the law to Moses, there are angels there. When Jesus came to this earth, his incarnation, there are angels there. When Jesus was tempted, there are angels there. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart before he was crucified, there are angels ministering to him. At Jesus' resurrection, there are angels. When Jesus ascends into heaven, there are angels. And there will be angels when he comes back again. Oh, angels are very important in the story of the Bible. And even there's a concept that seems like there's a lot of biblical support. Thank God. It's called guardian angels. The Bible speaks about them in Psalm 34 and Psalm 91. And maybe even in Matthew chapter 8, that's nice to think of, isn't it? That God helping me, helping you with some angelic presence. The book of Hebrews says this, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's good news, isn't it? Angels are made by God to help us. That's good news. But there's some bad news and here it comes. Verse 12. Then he, this is the angelic messenger. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, that's Daniel chapter nine, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. God sent from the time Daniel began to pray God sent an angelic messenger to answer his prayer. But, verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So here's the angelic messenger who's now speaking to Daniel and says, Daniel, God sent me three weeks ago, but I couldn't get here. What's your problem? Slow airplane? No, much, much worse. I've been fighting for the last three weeks. Who? An angel fighting against the Prince of Persia. Now, this is not some human being because the obvious, the warfare here is going on in the celestial realm somewhere. So here's an angel of God, a mighty angel of God sent by God to bring a message to Daniel, this highly esteemed man, and couldn't get there because he's fighting for three weeks. Can you imagine what that fight looked like? Until Michael, the great archangels whose job has been given by God to protect his people Israel, he stepped in and, and whooped him. And then the messenger got to Daniel. You see, there was a fallen angel, a demon who had been given authority by Satan to influence the affairs of the Medo-Persian empire. So what was this prince of Persia, this demon doing? Well, probably we know where he was. He was in the palace of King Cyrus, roaming around. No one could see him, but he was speaking little things to Cyrus and to Cyrus's um, advisors. Hey, you remember, Cyrus, those stupid people you sent back to Israel? They're a bunch of scum. They always cause trouble. Why'd you do that? Bring him back. Kill him. And all kinds of suggestions. Here's this angel fighting against the prince of Persia, the angel of God trying to do the opposite, strengthen God's people, build them up. And then there's this demon fighting, saying, no. Until Michael, the great archangel, the, the defender of the nation of Israel, comes, steps in and whoops him. That's what happened. Wow. Um, When Michael came to help him, the angel was finally able to complete his journey and to bring the message of encouragement to Daniel. Michael appears to have a special responsibility to care for the nation of Israel. Whoa. That's a pretty (laughs) scary thing. Though we seldom acknowledge them and we seldom see them, there are spiritual forces, both good and bad, that are waging vicious war in the heavenlies, impacting life here on planet Earth that we do not see. Now, well, The Bible tells us a good deal about demons. And this is, by the way, one of the only passages in the Bible that we have both angels and demons together. Demons are also created beings. Apparently, demons began their existence in innocence. And at some point, they chose to follow Lucifer probably an archangel, and they became rebels against God and thus demons. As demons, they are under the authority of Lucifer or Satan, who is a murderer and a liar by nature, who the Bible tells us exercises his power over the whole world. In fact, this is Satan's world that we live in right now. Thankfully, there's a God who's sovereign over all of that. He's the great deceiver. He's the schemer. And his most diabolical thing is to be the accuser of God's people, Christians, and to destroy us. Demons carry out Satan's orders. They oppose God's purposes. They seek to thwart the mission of Jesus unsuccessfully. They engage in all forms of temptation. They oppose the spiritual progress of God's people. They inflict disaster, disease, and even death. They can inhabit and even take over human beings who are demonized, or we sometimes call it demon-possessed. It's pretty scary. I remember one time I was in a place called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem. And of course, it's a horrible place. But if we don't remember, we're liable to do it again. And I remember going through Yad Vashem, which I've been through many, many times. And I got to the other end and I was walking with our guide, who was Jewish. Alan Rabinowitz was his name. And as we talked about it, just deeply sobered by what we had seen, he said, You know, Tom, it just doesn't add up. Because, of course, he knew the sociological reasons for the Holocaust and the political reasons for the Holocaust and the economic reasons for the Holocaust. But when you add this all together, it doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't add up. You know why? Because the most important reason of all, he did not know. It's the spiritual reason. Because it just doesn't add up. Because it doesn't. And so the chapter ends in this way. While he, that's the angel, was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless then one, the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth, and I began to speak. I said to the one standing before him, I, before me, I, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. Daniel, remember, you are highly esteemed. Peace Be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me new strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So this spiritual warfare is not going to stop. But first, I'm going to tell you what is written in the book of truth. And what is that? That's the next chapter of Daniel. No one, supports me against, uh, uh, no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So Daniel's given a, 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 a glimpse into the realm of spiritual warfare. Um, I suspect most of you have encountered things in your life that you go, something else is going on here. I remember it happened to me back in 1992 My little three-year-old daughter came down with cancer and she was, she almost died many times. She went through two and a half years of chemotherapy. And I remember looking at that little tiny body, almost dead and saying, why? I mean, for me, I I would certainly have deserved that. But this little thing, what's going on? What are you doing? Why this little child, three-year-old so ravaged with horrible things, why? Well, there's a war going on. We forget that we're in a war. We, I, I don't like war. I hate war. I love peace. I want to live a nice, peaceful life, and I want everyone to live a peaceful life, but that's not reality. We should know that. So what is God trying to teach us as we leave this morning? One, unfortunately, sin has consequences, and judgment is coming. God's going to tell Daniel that judgment is coming for his people because they have disobeyed him and judgment is coming for us too. Why? Because God is holy. He's just. And he has a well thought out plan to completely bring an end to sin and suffering and usher in his righteous rule. And thankfully God sets limits on seasons of evil. Maybe we're in such a season right now. Who knows? This one's interesting. I just pondered this a lot this week. Leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, educational leaders, leaders, cultural elites, entertainers, business tycoons, etc., are targets of Satan and his demons. If we take the Bible seriously, we should not be stupefied, that is, shocked, when leaders do stupid things, and we should be far less likely to put any leader on a pedestal. Because leaders are particularly stupid because we're targets of demons. That's what the passage is about. So what we do in this world, we're so stupid. I don't know how to say this out of any other way. We put people with power on pedestals, not realizing that they are not worthy of being emulated most of the time. They've just got huge targets on their chests. When we see our leaders, both parties, and you scratch your head, where in the world did that come from? We should know when they do dumb tweets or magnificently evil decisions, when they have like a good Catholic background, for example. We go, what? They're targets. They're pawns. So what should we be doing? First of all, don't put them on pedestals, please. Don't put me on a pedestal. What should we do? The Bible tells us, first of all, Paul says, first of all, pray for them. They're targets. I'm a target. You teachers, you're targets. Anyone who leads people, you're a target. We need prayer. They need prayer. They don't need pedestals. We need prayer. And we see these leaders of all kinds being corrupted by power and money. We need prayer because they are targets. And they're pawns in a cosmic war. Most of them don't have a clue what they are doing. They don't have a clue. We have to acknowledge that the world of angels and demons is real. Someone named Ronald Knox said this. It is so stupid of modern civilization to have given up believing in the devil when he is the only explanation of it. Many things we can't explain. The only explanation you can come up with is there's somebody evil out there, something evil going on. And by the way, when things don't add up, when something doesn't make sense, when someone doesn't pass the smell test, like anti-Semitism, for example, why has all of the history of the world focused our attention on this little group of people, numbering not even a a discernible number of the people of the world's population? 15 million out of 7.5 billion. And all the world's hostility has been directed at this little group of people called Jews. Why? When something makes no sense, when it's completely apart from logic or reason in any way at all, why? There is an explanation. Something much bigger is going on than we can ever know. And your prayers, by the way, your prayers may, in fact, pick fights. (laughs) Did you ever think of that? When you sit down to pray for someone, what you may be actually doing is picking a fight. You're picking a fight between angels and demons because God hears our prayers and there may be a fight going on in the heavenlies we don't know anything about and it's scary if someone as godly as Daniel could be completely broken by a glimpse into the reality of spiritual evil what does that do to us I thank God that he's never given me that but God does tell us what to do he says put on the full armor of God what does that mean It seems to me that the best explanation of the full armor of God is to clothe yourself in Jesus Christ, who is the truth, who is our righteousness, who is the good news, who is the object of our faith, who is our salvation and who is the word of God. That's the armor. We we clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ. And we remember that Jesus Christ won. He won 2000 years ago on the cross Someone said this, the irony of the gospel is that the battle is won, not through killing, but rather by dying. It was the death of our Lord Jesus Christ that won the battle, the war over sin, and opened up the gates to eternal life. Well, I close with a story. I may have told you portions of this before, but that's okay. When I lived in Africa, of course, there were a lot of spiritual phenomena that took place there, a lot. And uh, there was this one group of people that we would see on Saturday nights because they would treat, beat drums all night long. And uh, we were told just to stay away from them because they were a, um, it was a demonic group. And so I did. I'd see them. They would walk on the roads and the paths with these like, robes on, carrying sticks, and they'd beat drums all night, calling on demons is what they did. And so I, did, I never had anything to do with them when I lived there back in the 1970s. 30 years later, I went back to Africa where I lived. And almost all the missionaries that I knew back then and all the African people I taught and, and worked with were gone. But there was one missionary left, and I went to visit him. And I asked him, what are you doing now? He said, well, I'm working among the Zionists. That's what they're called, or Amazioni. I said, that's witchcraft. I said, yes. so he said, yes. He said, he asked me, do you want to go with me? I said, no, no, I'm afraid of that. And so he convinced me to go with him to an Amazioni worship service. And I went. On our way there, of course, he said to me, oh, by the way, Tom, you're preaching today. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm preaching in a a context of witchcraft. What is that? And so when we got there, my friend went to the back of his car and and opened the trunk and got out a choir robe and put it on and a stick. And We walked into this building, a ramshackle building. And there was a fire in the middle of the building with people going around the fire, dancing around the fire in trances. And I thought, Oh my goodness, what is this? And then after they were in this trances for a while, they, 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 everyone sat down. They just had these little benches and they sat down and they said, okay, Tom, it's your turn to preach. So of course they didn't speak English. I didn't speak Zulu and everything was translated. After I finished the, the pastor who's a witch doctor <laughs> He called on some of the people, he said, "Tell us what you learned today." and what they they said was really good. And then he said, "Let's have some prayer time." And so people gave their prayer requests, stood up, and he, on one hand put their hands on them, was calling on the demons, and my friend, the missionary, oh, what a godly man, on the other hand, was putting his hands on their shoulders, calling on Jesus. It was quite a scene and then they you know, then they started dancing around the fire, some more going into the trances and we left after only three hours. That was, it usually is a five-hour service. And I got out, to the, got out to the car, and I said to my friend Bruce, I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I said, he says, I've got a Bible school. I think he said, I have 200 of these leaders in my Bible school. I'm teaching them the Bible. And I said, aren't you afraid? He said, no. And he said to me, he said, and by the way, the number of Amazioni is somewhere between 15 and 18 million people in Southern Africa. And he said, Tom, so because you're afraid, you're going to let 15 to 18 million people go to hell? So I'm not doing that. And Then he says, doesn't the Bible say greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world? And I felt about as big as a worm because I was oh, thank God for people like you who are like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, may you help us to walk like Jesus walked as we walk from this building, as we walk in our lives every day without fear, but with true humanity, knowing that you are greater than anything we'll face in this world.